You were born with individual strengths and a unique purpose. Don't let fears, false beliefs, or life's happenings diminish your influence. It's time to live and lead for impact. Host Kirsten Ross, expert of transformation, will help you defeat the drama and overcome the trauma that can stop you in your tracks. You'll gain focus, find confidence, and take bold action. Unleash passionate, purposeful you. Let's go. Welcome to Live and Lead for Impact. I'm Kirsten Ross, your host, and this is episode 217. Today, I have a really fun guest, Michael McDonald, and I can't wait to have him share. He is the former executive chairman and CEO of Metafast. Before that, he was an executive vice president for OfficeMax and spent 33 years in sales, marketing, and general management at Xerox, where he served as the president of the North American Solutions Group, a $65 billion division of the company. He also served on the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research. So welcome, Michael. I'm so looking forward to hearing what you're up to now. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your program. Yeah, so tell me, what work are you doing right now, and what impact are you working to make in the world? Well, you know, I, I actually retired as uh, chairman of MetaFast in December, and I'm focusing primarily on the Jimmy V Foundation. In fact, uh, the book from the bench to the boardroom that just came out May 25th, uh, all the proceeds that I get from that book will go to children's pediatric cancer, which is a major focus of Dick Vitale, one of our board members who I serve with. And that's one of the reasons uh, I'm really trying to spend time promoting the book to try to really raise money to help uh, prevent cancer and to work, uh, uh, especially with children's cancer, which is a major problem in the United States. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about the book. Say the name again, and what's it about? It's from the bench to the boardroom. And, and what the book is about is a story of really my life that starts uh, when I was in high school in Philadelphia. And I, t I talk about growing up in the, uh, in the Philadelphia area. I was a, 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 a young player who really wasn't very successful to start out. I got cut my freshman year of high school, my sophomore year of high school. I, I didn't make the varsity. I, I only played part-time even as a junior in high school. And then really I developed and I, I got better my senior year and I was able to get an athletic scholarship to uh, Rutgers University for basketball, where I then uh, had a chance to play on uh, the first NCAA team in the school's history in 1975. But a lot of the book in the beginning is about the frustrations of dealing with adversity. And as a young person, what you can learn from all of that and try to take the, the things that you learn from athletics, uh, you know, teamwork, uh, working with other people, uh, perseverance, uh, handling adversity, all those things and using them to your benefit. And as you develop and as you get older, a lot of the lessons you learn uh, in sports and if you handle it the right way are very, very transferable to being successful in the business world. So the book really has six chapters related to uh, sports related things and then six chapters that three are related to a major turnaround I did at Xerox managing the six and a half billion dollar division uh, under Ann Mulcahy who was the chairman of Xerox and then also the 
turnaround of Metafast, when I took over Metafast uh, from my brother who actually uh, died of cancer six months after I took over, uh, I, I took a company that was worth about $250 million in market cap, where today Metafast is worth over $3.3 billion. Uh, you know, and that was a, a major transition uh, over a period of years from 2011 uh, to 2017, and then I stayed chairman until 2000 and uh, the end of uh, last year. So uh, it really is a combination of uh, of, of sports and business, uh, and I think it's uh, it's very good. A uh, very good book, I think, for young people to read who are really looking at saying, you know, what do I want to do with myself in life? And uh, I think I give a lot of good insights into, you know, how you can uh, transform yourself and the things you can take advantage of to be successful. That's awesome. Wow. What a what a story. What a history you have. And I would love to dive in a little bit deeper into because uh, wow, do you show tenacity in not making the teams at all? I mean, I can't imagine too many people go from not making the teams at all in their first two years in high school, not making varsity and then getting um, getting to play at the college level. So uh, what kinds of mindset shifts did you have to work through and and what were the actions that you took to uh change your play well what i what i did was uh uh and it was not easy because i came from a, a lower middle class family in philadelphia we had seven children my father was a cab driver and a truck driver my mother was a rock at professional dancer um you know when she was young and you know we didn't have very much money so you know it, it was very clear from the beginning my mother even just said to me, you either go into military and get support to go to college through being in the service, or you get a scholarship. So uh, my older brother, he did it through the military with the Marine Corps, uh, and I had the opportunity to uh, get to Rutgers. But what really helped me was when I was a, a junior in high school, I had a very a new guy, Dick Bernhardt, became the head coach of my team. And he saw that I was, I was only 150 pounds. I was 6'3". He used to take me out to a delicatessen to get milkshakes so I gain more weight and try to get heavier so I could, you needed to be at least 175 to be a division one player. And I was six, three and a half, so I was tall enough, but I was, I was very thin. And he did something that was really good. He worked at a basketball camp in the Poconos uh, for a guy named Bill Foster, who was a famous coach at Rutgers and then Duke and then Northwestern. And he coached in South Carolina. Bill was one over 500 games. And he got me a job where I would go to camp and I would run the snack bar. I would serve all the kids lunch. I would serve them dinner. And then in between, I got to play with all of them. So I would then get to play and go to the lectures at the camp and all that. And I did it for like a month where I went every day and they would have people like Bobby Knight come in, famous coaches and Adolph Rupp at the time. And, uh, you know, Coach Wooden even attended that camp at one time. And, you know, so I had a chance to really learn from some of the best coaches that there were in the country and get to play with a lot of great players 
and I got to fund it by working. So my parents didn't have to pay, and I worked and did everything I could to, to, to get through camp. And I got to meet Bill Foster, who was the coach of Rutgers, who was uh, one of the you know great leaders that I've ever met, a very classy individual who, uh, you know, Rutgers was not a basketball powerhouse. Rutgers was more noted as an academic institution than it was ever for sports. And even to this day, they're... They're in the Big Ten and they do pretty well, but uh, they've always been more focused on academics and athletes getting their degrees than they ever have been, you know, putting them all into the pros. You know, so it's uh, uh, it, it was it was a good kind of place to go because of that. But but Bill set an example himself. He was very organized, very disciplined. Uh, he was a, a guy who, you know, when he ran the camp, everything happened by the minute. You know, at eight o'clock was this, and there was this, and you you just saw how how great he was. And when I went to that camp, I constantly kept getting better in that summer. And I hadn't even played a varsity game in uh, in high school, really played at all. And I was at the camp, and I they they invited uh, Gary Brokow from New Brunswick High School came up. And Gary was a great star at Notre Dame, and I had a very good game playing against him. And he was being recruited by Rutgers. And uh, after the game, Bill Foster said to me, "Mike, we'd be very interested in you coming to Rutgers with Gary." And here I was, I hadn't started a high school game yet. And already a college coach was talking to me. Now, then there was the pressure. When I went back to high school now, I better perform. You know, on the yeah. Or, or <laughs> by the way, I'm not going to get the scholarship because they were talking to me, but until they see you compete. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I played uh, for a very good high school team in Philadelphia. And, you know, we had a pretty good season. We were 16 and 14. The year before, we were 29 and 2, but we graduated everybody. But I played on a team with uh, Ed Stefanski, who was the president of the Detroit Pistons, who was a very good player, and Mike Stack, who played at Villanova, and myself. And we, we had a good team and um uh you know i did well enough i i think i averaged about 14 or 15 points a game that rutgers gave me a scholarship and uh that was a big turning point for me because uh you know and it was interesting my coach uh my parents were blue collar people so you know all i knew were the philadelphia schools temple penn villanova LaSalle. i didn't know much about the rest of the world in college at that time so my coach said to me mike i'm going to take you to four or five colleges this is where you're going to go so i said where are we going to go he said we're going to go to rutgers princeton nyu annapolis uh, and maybe one of the Philadelphia schools. Well, we skipped the Philadelphia schools. We went to NYU, uh, Princeton, Annapolis, and Rutgers. And, uh, you know, NYU decided to go Division three, and they gave up Division one, so they didn't have any scholarships. Annapolis, I went there, and I was colorblind, so I could I didn't want to be on ships. I was too tall. I'd be banging my head all the time. So I wanted to fly, and they you can't fly when you're colorblind. You'd be shooting down the wrong, uh, the wrong enemy. So I couldn't do that. And it really got, in Princeton, they said, well, we can give you money, but it's thousands of dollars to go there. Well, my father, at the time, only made about $7,000 a year. So if it was $2,000 a year, it would have been a fortune. So I go to Rutgers, and Bill Foster says, Mike, it's $200 a year. My coach said his father can afford that. And that's what it was. It was $2,200 a year was my full scholarship to Rutgers when I went there. Wow. You, you know, so it was... Uh, it was something that, you know, was, it, it was unbelievable. I, I was never so thrilled as to uh, sign with them. And, and, and academically, it was, uh, 
uh, a great school. I mean, I was, I wasn't a great student. I was 160 out of 600 in my high school class, but I had a 90 average. It just had a lot of smart kids in my school. You know, we had really smart kids and, uh, you know, but I was the B student who was very successful, uh, not the A student. And that's the other thing I try to get across in the book is that, you know, anybody who really works hard and has focus and dedication and has street smarts, uh, you don't have to be the A student to succeed in life. And, uh, you know, I think many people think that, hey, that's, I mean, I've managed more people who went to Ivy League schools than most executives. And uh, they're brilliant people. And uh, they were great contributors to everything I ever managed, but didn't stop me from managing them. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, uh, so tell me, so. tell me some of what you, what you translated personally from what you learned you know, that summer and beyond and playing basketball, uh, what you learned and what you were able to translate into the success that you then uh, achieved in business? What were some of the key things? Well, some of the, I think most important is leadership skills. I, I learned, I was very shy in high school and I, I was pretty timid and I learned how to be a leader by, uh, you know, through basketball, through, through gaining confidence and my leadership skills got better and uh, I became a leader uh, on my team and I became a leader, uh, you know, w w with people that I was around. And I think that was helpful. Then the second thing was teamwork. You know, one of the great things in big companies is you fail pretty quickly if you don't have the ability to work with other people. And, to, and by the way, to treat people the right way. And one of the things I learned in sports was how to treat people. You know, and 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 how you wanted to be treated. And the other thing I learned was diversity. When it was in the '70s, I was on a team at Rutgers that was, uh, you know, had tremendous uh, minority athletes who were fantastic. And uh, you know, we had uh, half the team was white and half the team was black. So we we had great diversity. And by the way. That diversity helped me the rest of my career because I, I worked for Ann Mulcahy, one of the great women CEOs for 10 years. And I worked, uh, you know, in my own organization, I had terrific representation of Hispanics and, uh, you know, all types of people. And I think basketball was a big positive to teach me that, that everybody's the same. You know, we all we all come from different backgrounds, but you need to treat everybody the same and, and respect everybody and uh, and try to help everyone. And I think I learned that and I learned perseverance. I mean, one of the things I think that that people uh, lack sometimes two great attributes of perseverance and courage. And what I mean by that is perseverance is the ability to handle adversity and not always have things go your way and the ability to get up and keep going and, and keep working and keep you know at your goal, despite the fact that it may not seem like you're getting there. And then courage is the ability as you work to make tough decisions, to, you know, to really say, you know, if your boss gives you a budget of $500,000 in sales, well, you know, your job is to make the budget. But by the way, also have the courage to be honest with people, to, to focus on what you really need to do, to make tough decisions and, you know, uh, to drive that. So some of those attributes you learn in sports and they're very transferable to the business world. And the one thing I, I also took out of it was in basketball, I could shoot, but I was slow and I couldn't really jump that great. I wasn't a great defensive player, but I was a great shooter. And, and that really helped me get a college scholarship. But in business, there's no limitations 
because of how high, how fast you run, how high you jump, all these other things. There is no limitations. The limitations are only yourself because anybody can work hard, can focus, can dedicate themselves and can be successful anywhere if you put your mind to it. And if you really try to do the right things and you have discipline and you have organizational skills and you try to develop those things and, and, and have, as I mentioned before, the attributes of perseverance and teamwork and empathy for people, and, uh, you can be successful doing anything. And by the way, learn any business. I mean, one of the things I think that if you saw from my background, I was in the technology businesses for years. I did 10 years on telecom boards. I went into consumer products. I went into the diet business. I was in the direct selling business in the diet business. I did every kind of thing you could think of. And I wasn't an expert on all those things. Xerox trained me to be an expert in technology for 33 years, but the other ones I learned. So one of the things I think it's also important that I learned from sports is you learn your entire life. You know, when you suit up for a basketball team, you're starting to learn, you're learning from coaches, you're learning from great people, then you're continuing to learn. And if, you know, and you always want to, every time I could go to something when I was at Xerox, whether it be Columbia or Harvard or different programs, I signed up for them all and said, hey, I want to do it. I want to help myself advance. I want to try to do these things. And those things are available in large companies and, uh, and even in small companies. But a lot of people sort of just go about what they're doing and they really don't try to, uh, you know, develop themselves and really focus on, on, on that uh, very effectively. And I think uh, that's very important. And I think it's very transferable when you look at sports and you look at the business world. Uh, many of those attributes are the same. You know, I as you were talking too, I started thinking about, you know, you talked about courage too and perseverance and learning. And I'm sure you've seen this, but one barrier that I think uh, too many people allow to be a trip up is that learning piece. Because at some point, you know, when we're when we're young, we just have a thirst for learning. Some people start to be annoyed with learning new things. They just don't feel like it anymore. Or they don't want to appear like they're dumb. And so they start to pretend like they know, you know, or don't want to move through the discomfort of trying new things because it is always going to be just uncomfortable. But if you're stopped by that, then your growth stops. Well, I, I, I agree with you. And I think there's nothing wrong. I, I think another important thing, just as in sports, you fail. In business, you fail. I've had many successes, but many failures. And I've learned as much from failing as I've learned from being successful. And I think that, you know, one of the things you have to do as a good executive is allow people to fail and don't have them feel that they're going to lose their job because they failed in one project or a certain thing that they've done. And you've got to allow people to have that happen. Uh, but I think the thing you, the, the thing you mentioned that's important is that, uh, you know, you have to be a lifelong learner. You, you can't just, uh, you know, learn when you're young. Uh, I think you got to learn in your 60s and your 70s. Uh, I'm shocked. In fact, I, I think I, I heard it the other day. One person said to me that the average college graduate only reads one book a year. Mm. And then I'm sitting back saying, every time I'm on a plane, I want to read a book. You know, and I try to read it between the trip starting out and coming back. And I, I think you learn so many things by reading, uh, and especially about things you don't know about. 
you know, I, I, it's 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 sad when you when people don't take advantage of the opportunities that they have. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, keep learning, keep trying new things. And I loved what you said too about allow people to fail and don't have them being fearful of losing their jobs. So I always say, like, you want that safety net. You don't want everyone performing in in fear because I, you yeah. know, I, the the visual I always get is like the duck and cover. They're tucking in. You know, I don't want to stick my neck out. I, you know, I don't want to be in trouble. And then you have everyone just only doing exactly what's on their job description. And wow, that is a recipe for failure. Well, I, I think the most important thing in management is to empower your people. Uh, let them be empowered. I, see, whoever I, one of the great people I worked for was Ann Mulcahy, uh, who was the CEO of Xerox for 10 years, and I worked for her entire tenure. And she had a great ability to create a positive culture and a positive environment, but give you your your objectives, but allow you to figure out how to get there and to create an environment where uh, it was a positive environment, even under the most stressful circumstances. Uh, when I was at Xerox, we had to reduce our employment in the U.S. from 52,000 to 27,000 people, which is very, very difficult to do to restructure a major division of a company. And, uh, you know, Ann and I were out communicating to employees all over the country, just letting them know why we had to do it. We had to take the company from 100,000 to 50,000. Then a few years later, the company recovered in its performance and we had 147,000 people. So we had a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy. We saved it. And then it had 147,000 people a few years later, uh, up from 50,000 that we had taken it to. But many times, you know, the, the challenge is uh, making sure people really understand in an organization what you're trying to do. Uh, but I think that whole issue of uh, people not being afraid to make decisions and letting them have empowerment to do certain things uh, is very important to have in a good organization because people want to feel like they're doing things and accomplishing things. Yes, absolutely. And they want to know where the boundaries are. I always, uh, I use the visual of a sandbox, you know, so the sandbox gives you the boundaries. And then within that, there's lots of room to play, you know, but but you're going to create those specific outcomes, the objectives. But, um, you know, I'm like, yeah, remember when you were a little kid and you had a, you know, some Tonka trucks and a... <laughs> A peel and a shovel. Like, yeah, no one's dictating the play, you know, but yeah, stay within the sandbox. So, yeah. And the biggest thing I always stress to our people was, hey, the one thing that you can't do is violate ethical policies. I mean, the thing that's off limits is you don't want people cheating or lying or stealing or doing things that are unethical within a company. And that's very important. And uh, as long as people understand that, uh, you know, uh, you'll have the right kind of behaviors through your management teams. Right. So um, you have been through some tough stuff. Uh, I've been through some downsizings, not to that degree. And wow, there's a lot of tough decisions, a lot of tough discussions to have during that. So I know that you've been through some tough times. So what strategies do you use uh, that you can share with others to stay motivated and moving during tough times? Well, here's what we what I did. I mean, one of the things I did, like in Rochester, we had 2,000 people in the headquarters building that I managed. And when I was going to uh, do the downsizing, I put them, I called them all to an auditorium 
And I told them up front that, by the way, we're going to go from 2,000 in this room to 1,000. And I'm going to get you outplacement. I'm going to do everything I can do for the people. We're going to, I moved some divisions to General Electric. Uh, we, 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 we had people that went to work for them versus Xerox as we were working all these things. But we tried our best to be very straightforward in the communication and to be honest. Then the second thing you have to look at, once you're going to do a downsizing, what are you going to do for the survivors? So they feel good about working in the company. And what we did was focus on leadership, executive leadership. I sent probably 350 managers to the Center for Creative Leadership in North Carolina. I got people executive coaches. We did uh, improved compensation for our salespeople. We did more recognition trips for people. So at the same time, as we were right-sizing the company, we wanted to make it exciting and motivating for the people who were going to stay there and return the company to greatness again. And I think it's important that you do both because uh, if you if you just do the downsizing and the tough stuff, you're going to have the survivors not understanding what you're going to do for them. And you've got to focus on their careers and they've got to be motivated uh, to stay with the company. And the good thing I think that Ann drove as, as, the, uh, C, as the chairman CEO and that I drove as the division president was uh, we did focus on that and we maintained our best people through a very, very difficult time from 2000 to 2005. So it, it was not easy uh, at that time, but we, we worked our way through it and, and did exceptionally well. And the outcome for me, I took the profit in North America from 180 million to 680 million over a four year period. Wow. So we, imp we improved the profit $500 million. And, uh, uh, and improve the revenue. The revenue was negative when we did the uh, turnaround and it went to five, six percent positive. So so we had good results from a revenue standpoint. We had great results from a profit standpoint uh, through a difficult period. And uh, I, I was very proud of the work of all the people in that division, the North American Solutions Group, uh, and, and the way they worked to do that. We had 20,000 technicians, uh, servicing equipment, 5,000 sales. But was, we had a lot of different people that, you know, contributed to that. One of the things you find out that's very interesting uh, when you go through those kind of exercises, your customers love their service people. So right. you got to be very careful. You know, many times people will say, well, you know, we're going to cut this, we're going to cut that, we're going to cut this. And you got to be very careful where you cut so you don't take the wrong people out who have the greatest impact servicing your customers. So when you do those types of restructuring, you have to do it very surgically so you uh, you make sure you do it the right way. And if any customer is having to shift to a new service person, you better do a really nice handoff so they don't feel dumped. <laughs> that, that's, that's, exa that's exactly right. Because people, I found it out when, when we had 9-11 in New York, which was uh, which was a disaster. We had two Xerox people who were killed in 9-11. We were lucky because the service guys got would get into the building a little later than when the planes crashed. Mm. But to give you an example, there were service people who all their customers had been killed in 9-11 because they because in those buildings we had over 10,000 machines so many times you know a service rep might have 200 machines so they could have three floors in the world trade center wow you know so it was a very painful thing but you know what we saw how critical those people were to each other how the customer and the service rep were so aligned and they cared about each other and, um, you know, that was a big part of the success of Xerox over, you know, 50, 60 years was those 
great service people who helped uh, in the field. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's, you know, those are thoughts that you don't have when you think about 9-11, like the ripple effect, you know, of all those machines and the people who were servicing those machines and knew the people working in those offices. So, wow. Well, you have certainly maneuvered through a lot of tough stuff and uh, the book sounds amazing. I'm going to encourage everyone to get it. Uh, and in a second, I, well, where can they, where yeah, the can book, they get the it? Book right now is for sale on Amazon. It's been on okay. Amazon and that's probably the easiest place uh, to Great. get it. Uh, some Barnes and Nobles will also have it, but it mostly, most of it will be through Amazon. And as yep. I mentioned, for every book that's sold, uh, my portion will go to pediatric cancer. So my goal is to sell as many books as I can to, to help uh, you know have more cancer research uh, from the Jimmy V Foundation and all the researchers that we fund. That's great. And again, the book name is From the Bench to the Boardroom. And we're hearing a very inspiring story about Michael did that, how Michael did that. And first, just the, you know, the journey to even getting on that bench. So as we close out, uh, what words of wisdom do you have for others who are working to make their impact in the world? Maybe they're just getting started or they're fairly new to the journey. What would you tell them? Well, I think the first thing you want to do is have a positive attitude. And I think one of the things I always did that really helped me, even through my uh, saddest moments when I got caught and had to go home and tell my parents I didn't make the team again, uh, was that I always had a great attitude about what I was doing every day. And I always came to work uh, for 42 years, ready to work every day. And I think if you do that, uh, that's a huge positive uh, and I and I think that uh, uh, you, you you get through a lot of things through attitude. And then the second thing is you want to develop personal discipline. And personal discipline uh, means that hey, if you make a commitment, you say you're going to be there at eight o'clock. You say you're going to be there at five o'clock, or you say you're going to meet uh, somebody for lunch, or you say you want to do it uh, and and be there and be viewed as a reliable person. Uh, with anybody in the business world. And then uh, I think the, the other thing is making sure you keep your word. If you're working with people, you know, there's a lot of gossip that goes on in offices, a lot of stuff that's really you know, not very productive. But one of the things you want to do, if you give your word to people, whether you're a manager, like example, I was very careful. If I told somebody I thought they could, would be somebody I would promote, uh, I meant it. And I helped them. If I didn't feel they were promotable, I'd say, hey, right now, I don't I don't feel you're at that level. And I'd give them the appropriate feedback. So I think uh, direct honesty uh, and understanding those types of things as you're young, as you start to move up, I, I think is very important. And to ask for feedback. Most people are afraid to ask somebody what they think of them. You know, and, and I think feedback is important to get from people so you can help yourself. And as a leader, so important to give. I love that you use that example of authentic feedback because, and I'm going to go back to what you said about good leadership requires courage. And so many people are afraid to hurt someone's feelings. But the problem is if you have constructive feedback to give and you haven't, they know. <laughs> you know, it's coming yeah. out in other ways. They know. But, you know, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had an employee say, well, I'm assuming I'm doing okay. I mean, good news, no news is good news, right? And I just am always like, ah, oh, what a missed opportunity because I just, that is one of the innate human desires is to feel like we're doing a good job. And we have a sense if we're not doing a good job. And if you're not telling me, I'm still guessing now I'm on walking on eggshells and we're not making a plan. But if, you know, if a leader tells someone, 
you know, here's the gap and, you know, here's what you can do about it. That's a gift that you give someone. Well, it, it is. I remember one time I missed, uh, uh, we made a mistake calculating our post-sale revenue one quarter and I missed by $10 million. Our finance team had made an error and I had to call in because $10 million affects you with Wall Street when you report your earnings. And I called her up and I said, Duran, I just want to tell you, we fouled up. We made a mistake. It's an error. And I'll never forget that she said to me, Mike, I said, uh, you know, this is the first time you guys have missed a quarter in a long time. And he, she said to me, just don't do it again. <laughs> That's great. And, 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 and that was what she said. You know, she, she understood the mistake, but I also owned up to my mistakes. And, mm-hmm. and by the way, I didn't blame the finance department. I was the president. I'm responsible. Mm-hmm. You know, they're my people and I'm responsible because uh, it was in my organization. So you also have to take credit, for, you know, for the mistake, even if you may not have been involved in every little detail of it, uh, because you are resp- ultimately responsible. And I think that's the other thing that I think is important is to whenever you do a job, take responsibility for what you're doing and you know, yeah. you're responsible for it. And uh, if it isn't good, you, you got to take ownership for it. You know, don't blame. I never blamed other people for my problems. Uh, you know, that was not something I ever did. Like, I didn't even sit there and say, oh, that coach was a bad coach because he cut me last week. Mm-hmm. Well, the guys who cut me were very good coaches. You know? so <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like they were making a mistake. I, I wasn't good enough at that time, and I was getting cut for good reasons. So, you know, when you really look back on it, most times when people do give you negative feedback, it's because you deserved it. Yep. And you can use it to get better. But if you don't know, you can't, you don't know to get better. So, well, thank you so much, Michael, for uh, spending time with me and for all the great stories um, and, you know, the history that you've shared. And again, the the book sounds phenomenal. Uh, It's called From the Bench to the Boardroom. And uh, you can find the title if you're not at a place where you can uh, jot that down. You can find the show notes for today's episode by going to defeatthedrama.com. Click on the podcast tab and then go to episode 217 and we will have notes from all the great info and insights that Michael shared and also the name of the book with a link. So uh, get out there and make your own impact and thank you, Michael. Any parting words? No, I just want to say that uh, anybody can succeed and I think that's important and no one should feel left out. Thank you. And the world's waiting for your impact. Everyone get out there, make your impact. Don't let fear or any of those things stop you. Get out and do it. 